the series that we're in, we've titled it Returning. Um, Lent serves this great purpose of preparing us to, um, to present our full selves when we get to Easter, but it's also a time for us in the returning, for us to um, recognize the ways that we um, are not as close uh, to God maybe as we once were or as we would hope to be. Um, it is the returning that I know God gets so excited about. Um, as I have talked to some of you who have moved away in recent uh, weeks and months, as I talk to Cashy and Bill about their impending move, I have in the back of my mind, I can't wait for them to return for a visit. Um, I know I'm not the only one who is just going to stop and drop everything for those times when, uh, when they are back um, for a visit. Um, and that, that goes for, for any of you um, that have, have stepped away, moved away. And I, I want us to have that mindset that as we return to God, he's not angry with us. He wants to drop everything and welcome us as we, as we return to him. And so it's, Lent can be a, a very um, heavy season in the Christian calendar year, uh, but there's so much hope in with it. And I, I hope that that is, uh, I trust that's communicated as well. Um, if you get the weekly emails, whether it's midweek or weekend, then um, you would have uh, perhaps read this earlier this morning, but I'm going to begin and kind of introduce the message in this way. Um, I was invited into their home, and it was my first time to visit and to get to know this couple. They were a wonderful and beautiful couple who had been married around 50 years. Uh, I was offered something to drink and presented with an entire platter of snacks as we engaged in small talk. And then uh, he told me why they wanted to speak with me. And he very plainly said, I'd like you to officiate my funeral. I have terminal cancer. And I was, I was stunned. Um, this was uh, a couple that was fairly new to our church and um, not Bang Marin. This was a, a few years ago. Um, and so I really kind of thought, well, this is just getting to know some people or they wanted to hear more about the church. So really caught me off guard. My initial responses were mostly a, like a denial that he was ailing or terminal. Uh, the words didn't come out of my mouth, but were communicated by the look on my face. It was like, are you sure? I mean, you look like you're very healthy. Uh, what form of treatments will you undergo? And throughout this whole conversation, the two of them were remarkably calm and at peace. And the doctors proved to be right. Uh, my new friend did not live much longer, just a few short months. In the passage that Michelle read for us, Jesus calmly said to his disciples, uh, the Son of Man must suffer and die. The disciples responded in denial and even rebuke. And it would be easy for us, those of us who know the full story, to kind of look at them as, as being slow and kind of look down on the 12. But I can sympathize. It's hard to hear that someone who looks so healthy and acts so strong is also vulnerable to suffering and death. 
And that, those verses in, in Mark 8 that Michelle read, they, they tell the story of a sit-down conversation in which Jesus said to some of his closest friends, I'm going to die. Last week, as a part of uh, the, the beginning of Lent, uh, one of the por uh, portions of the passage that we looked at in Mark chapter 1 included Jesus' wilderness experience. And I, I kind of heard, um, heard this described in this way, that Jesus' wilderness period, the temptations, that 40-day temptation that he endured in the wilderness, that was to help him learn what it means to be the Messiah. Lent helps us learn what it means to be a disciple. So today's passage does a great job of, of helping these two kind of come together. We're going to look at Jesus' Messiahship and our discipleship. And in, in verse 31, I want to read that one again. Um, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. When I sat down in Jess and Arlene's living room, uh, in part to hear the unfortunate news, yes, but it was primarily to get to know them better, um, having not really met uh, before. Uh, I, if I remember right, the only conversation I'd had with Jess and Arlene was when they set up the appointment for me to come by their house. And so getting to know each other, that was the big part of it. And it's helpful for us as we read this story in Mark to get to know who Jesus is, beginning with how he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Um, the Son of Man, it was a messianic title from what we now refer to as the Old Testament. Um, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, Daniel has uh, this, this vision, as he says at the beginning of this passage. And uh, this is how it goes. He says, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this Son of Man title, um, was, uh, it was actually a favorite term that Jesus used to describe himself in the Gospels. Um, I'm, I read that it appears 81 times, and in its Old Testament usage, such as what I just read, um, the title presented the promised Messiah as one who is coming in glory, but also who would encounter suffering and death. So the people listening that day, if they were not familiar with the Old Testament, um, they would have been confused by Jesus' term, the Son of Man. So Jesus goes on to explain it, uh, plainly stating that the Messiah would suffer and die, but be raised again. So, so the Son of Man, I think it's important for us to get to know who Jesus is with that title, Son of Man. Um, but I don't want us to assume that we know really what Messiah means as well. And I suppose Mark didn't want his readers to remain in the dark either. So to help us understand the, the weight and the power and the glory 
of that title of Messiah, um, there is a story that takes place just prior to this, and the verses before is where Mark includes it. And I'll read these. Um, it's Mark. Um, I'll put it in the chat feature as well. Mark 8, verses 27 to 29. Jesus uh, and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now the, the Greek word for Christ and the Hebrew word uh, for Messiah, Christ and Messiah both mean the same thing. They're just different languages, but they both mean one who has been anointed. And they were originally used as an adjective, like an anointed king, for example, but it later came to be used as a noun and as a technical term referring to the one hoped for anointed king that was promised to them, a specific individual. So Peter, when he said, you are the Messiah, he is confessing that Jesus was not only one among many in their rich history to be anointed, but that Jesus was the anointed one. You are the promised one. And you can kind of think of this as kind of an apex moment in Peter's life as a disciple. Um, if Peter had correctly answered the who do you say I am question over Zoom, Jesus would have reacted with a clap on the, the with a click on the clapping emojis or or several thumbs up. Uh, this probably um, as awesome as this was, it, it may have really served to inflate Peter's already overinflated ego. Confidence through the roof. I can only guess how many buttons Pete popped off his shirt. So this guy, Simon Peter, uh, Jesus has uh, given him a new name, Petros Peter, which means rock. Um, Peter was always confident. It's important for you to know that, maybe, maybe even a bit cocky. And so giving that right answer only added to his swagger. When Jesus described himself as the suffering Messiah, Peter, though, didn't like what he heard. Um, if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, you had me at hello, it's kind of like Peter said, you had me at Messiah, but you lost me at suffering. So what does Peter do? And this has got to be one of the, one of the most absurd uh, verses in all of scripture. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's verse 32. So with this arrogant swagger, Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him. Peter takes Jesus aside, and Peter rebukes Jesus. The word for rebuke is a really strong word. Uh, it has to do with censorship. I read that it had to do with censorship. And so when I read that, uh, that it was like censorship, I imagined this conversation with the bleep sound that drowns out explicit language on television shows. It's like Peter tried to bleep out the words that Jesus was saying. Jesus plainly stated he would suffer, be rejected, and die. Peter spoke up. It was like bleep, bleep, and bleep. Those are things that I just don't want 
anyone to hear about you. And in the next verse, we read that Jesus replied with a rebuke. <laughs> Jesus replied with, no, bleep you. Jesus bleeped back by saying, you, Peter, are looking for a political Messiah, and that's not who I'm here to be. You may recall, Peter, that I was confronted with that same temptation in the wilderness to take a shortcut to an earthly reign to receive a crown without a cross. And I overcame that temptation in the wilderness, and I'm going to overcome that temptation now. My Father's will is that I carry my cross before receiving the crown. Now, I don't know that that's all that Jesus said to Peter, but that is, in essence, what was taking place in this moment. This was not the first time Jesus was confronted with, hey, there's an easier way here. So it's important to, to know that Peter understood what Jesus said. I mean, Jesus said it really plain. Um, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by some people, and I'm going to die. Peter understood that, but refused to accept it. So Peter's rebuke, his censoring of Jesus, was more in opposition to God's will in favor of what was more uh, a more popular opinion of the Messiah. Peter was kind of siding with the more popular opinion of who the people wanted the Messiah to be. And I suppose I can relate. I, I think the times that I am most frustrated in my spiritual journey are when God isn't the type of savior and rescuer that I want him to be. So, so this has taken place primarily between Jesus and Peter, but then he turns to a broader audience, which is the 12, and then he invites the crowd around to come closer. And so this is just an all-inclusive number of people who were interested in becoming a follower of Jesus, or they were in some way intrigued by who this man is that claimed to be the Son of Man, the Messiah. And this, this verse I'm about to read is when Jesus turns up the heat and we begin to feel the stakes rising. Beginning in verse uh, 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In other words, following Jesus means more than watching him heal and hearing him teach. A follower of Jesus is one who is willing to deny self and take up their own cross. At its most basic level, following Jesus means removing myself from the center of my concerns, relinquishing status and power in favor of serving others. Um, I was reading a, uh, an article that Ruth Haley Barton uh, wrote on Lent, and uh, she describes Lent in this way, and it ties in so much with this dying to self. I'm going to I'm going to paste that into the chat feature. You can read it as I do. She says, Lent, then, is a time to practice dying in small ways 
so that when the bigger deaths come, we will know how to let go of that which is no longer needed. It may not, it may not sound like it, but death to self is actually good news. What we die to is anything that constitutes our false self, which we wouldn't want to live with anyways. So he's saying there are some, some ways, and it doesn't necessarily mean even sin. It's just a way that we are choosing to live that is not um, centered around Christ and for the sake of others. Um, it, it becomes in some ways an obstacle or a hurdle for us in deepening our dependence on Jesus. So we, we see it in the example of Simon Peter. Um, Peter didn't initially see this clearly. Yes, he, he understood that Jesus was the Messiah, um, but his understanding of the Messiah was still blurry you could say. And I use that term blurry or out of focus because earlier in chapter 8, the writer Mark includes a story of Jesus giving sight to a blind man, but this story is unlike any other healing that we read in the Bible. Um, I'll, uh, it's Mark 8, 22 to 25, and let me see here. I want you to be able to read along with me. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This, this story told by Mark is the only example we have of someone Jesus healed in two stages. Um, it's kind of a fascinating uh, story that it was, it was a progression here. Um, I, I've, uh, I joked and said um, that one time I tried to, to heal someone myself, but it didn't work. Um, I made a lame man blind. Um, and so, so in my, um, in my quirky, weird way of thinking, I'm kind of looking at this like, did, did Jesus kind of foul this off? Was this, you know, what, what happened here? Well, I think Mark included this true story because we, like Peter, can be blinded by what we think a Messiah should be and what a Messiah should do. In other words, our sight comes to us in stages. I wonder how many times we have seen Jesus at work in our lives, but we didn't recognize that it was Jesus because the Savior didn't look like what we thought a Savior would look like. I, um, much like Peter, have a nearsighted perspective of what a Messiah and Savior should look like. I tend to look at what a Messiah and Savior should look like for right here, right now, and I don't have that, that distance uh, seeing. And I believe that comes to us over time. It's, I, 
I'm convinced that's a reason why uh, Mark included that story. And it's a reminder to us that even though we are like the disciples who can be a little slow in getting it, that's normal. We, we enter into this process of having our minds renewed and our lives transformed. Um, when uh, I, I mentioned this a little bit um, last week, go into a, some more detail. I've talked to some of you about this. Um, during Jack's winter break, he and I went to Vegas just a couple weeks ago. Uh, way back on Black Friday, we bought this package from a company called Dream Racing. And this company has several exotic sports cars that can be rented to drive on the Las Vegas Motor Speedway. So it was not simply, I looked at the, at the track, and this is not simply an oval track with four wide left-hand turns. It's actually a serpentine track with a total of nine turns. And the turns are sharp enough that braking and downshifting are required at specific times over the course of that 1.2 mile track. Um, before Jack and I got behind the wheel of our cars, um, a professional uh, driver took us out on the track in a Maserati SUV. And the first, he told us he was gonna take us out for two laps. And the first one, he said, I'm just gonna kind of point out the nuances of the track and how the cars respond. I'm gonna point out the lines that you need to take when approaching and then exiting a turn. And then the second lap, we're gonna get after it. Um, he said all that with a really cool Italian accent, um, which he was from Italy. And I told him, I said, man, even if you're not from Italy, that accent adds so much to the experience. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And so this guy, this guy gets us uh, in this Maserati. Jack's in the front. I'm in the back because he's taller than me. He needs more leg room. And uh, so the first lap, I'm like, you know, okay, good. You know, yeah, he kind of took this corner a little wide so he could cut it here. And I'm trying to memorize this path that he took on this track. And then the second lap, um, he warned us, um, <laughs> he gets after it. He was going to give us an example of how fast a car can cover a 1.2 mile track when it's pushed to the limits and it makes the most of what that car is designed to do. I've never felt G-forces like that when I'm in a vehicle. He tore up the track and I got car sick. Um, I, did not, I did not throw up in the car, nothing like that. But thankfully it was only one lap that he was gonna <laughs> show us what the car could do. Cause I'm woozy as I'm getting out of the car. And at that point I was so glad that Jack was scheduled to go out first on the track. So I'm, I'm off to the side getting, calming myself down. Um, Jack got to drive a Lamborghini Huracan, uh, the professional driver in the passenger seat next to him to give him advice. And uh, later when I drove with the professional in the seat next to me, I drove a Mustang GT. Now, in case you're wondering, the answer is no. It's not like a driver's ed car where he had a brake on the passenger side. Um, there was not an extra steering wheel. Um, although I do think it's really funny to imagine a student driver sticker on the back of a Lamborghini. Um, but uh, the, so the Mustang that I drove, 465 horsepower, Jack's Lamborghini, 550 horsepower. 
um, the Nissan Versa that we had rented for the, for our three days in Vegas, I think was like nine horsepower or something. Anyway, that Wednesday, February 17th, 2021, I will remember for the rest of my life as one of the funnest days of my life. It was an amazing experience. So after my laps were completed, um, get out of the, that Mustang and I, I turned to that driver who was with me and I asked him, I said, what could I do to improve my lap times? If, I, if I'm able to come back, I wanna, I wanna improve my lap times. And I was really surprised by what he said. He said, you need to brake harder. And he went on to describe the importance of braking in racing. He said specifically, you will have a better lap time driving the car at 95% than you would driving at 105%. Without proper braking, and he'd kind of described it to me, without proper braking, you are unable to accelerate at maximum speed at the apex of a turn. Lent, um, there is a point to this story other than maybe just telling you about one of the funnest experiences of my life. <laughs> um, Lent is a season, like I said, for returning and a return to God always involves some form of hitting the brakes, downshifting, decreasing our hectic life pace. Lent is a specific time of hitting the brakes so that we can accelerate on the other side towards the resurrection and beyond. And I don't mean that we slow down now for the next few weeks so that we can go faster and harder through life after Easter. Now, I would describe it more as um, we are slowing down now so that we can maximize life on the other side of our own denials of self. We are invited to a newly resurrected life with Christ, but for this to be experienced and for this life with Christ, for us to accelerate and experience all of that as a reality, we must first slow down for the purpose of noticing and progressively removing things within us that contradict our true self. Now, my professional driving instructor um, with the Italian accent, maybe from Italy, made it a point to, to teach Jack and I the importance of looking beyond the upcoming turn. He, he emphasized that we should always focus on a point on, on the other side of the turn. Keeping in mind the key to coming out of that turn fast required breaking before the turn. And here's the application that, that I am getting from this for my own life. Um, if your eyes never focus beyond the apex of this world or the apex of your next big decision in life, you will be ill prepared for accelerating in the life found on the backside of the turn. Peter was not looking beyond the immediate turn that was right there in front of him that the road was about to curve and bend and twist and snake was unacceptable to Peter. It's kind of like um, in driving lingo, he's saying, Peter is saying, 
the Messiah that I'm waiting for is going to straighten out every crooked road. Uh, the promised Messiah is the shortcut that I've been waiting for. The promised Messiah is one who will enable me to live life in the fast lane. The Messiah will make all things new by giving me a vehicle with only one pedal, an accelerator, so that I'm no longer stopped by the brakes of suffering, rejection, and death. When we take up our cross, when we remove ourselves from the center of our story to make room for serving others, when we die to our false self in order that we might live more fully as our true self, when we do these type of things, it brings Jesus into focus. We gain greater clarity about the person of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of Man. And we better recognize him beyond the apex of death in the resurrections of our daily lives. As we prepare for communion, I invite you to grab um, cup and the bread. I want to reach back to that opening story about Arlene and Jess. I will never forget that afternoon with Arlene and Jess. We sat around their coffee table. We placed our drinks on the coffee table. The big platter of finger foods was placed on the coffee table. It was around that coffee table that we talked about Jess, that we talked about his life and his all too soon death. Jesus gathered his disciples around a table. On that table were wine and bread. And around that table, Jesus spoke to them about a looming inevitable death. We partake in communion as a way to reenact that moment, to remember the importance of that moment, the importance that Jesus' death means for us the importance of remembering that Jesus was the Son of Man. He was the promised Messiah who would suffer and be rejected and die and be raised again on the third day. So remembering him, would you take the bread and remember Jesus offered his body for you? In taking the cup, Jesus shed blood, offered an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I want to mention that in a few short days after the disciples partook, of wine and bread around that table with Jesus. Just a few short days later, we read that the disciples didn't recognize Jesus. Their sight was still a little blurry because they had such difficulty accepting the Messiah as suffering, rejected, and dead. What I want us to learn in this is that the key to clearly seeing the risen, resurrected Jesus is to accept him as the suffering, rejected, and crucified servant. By participating in communion each week, it's like 
uh, we are training our eyes to recognize the way Jesus suffered and died for us. And the better we can see that, I believe um, the more we will see the ways that Jesus appears to us throughout the week in daily resurrections and new life. I want to uh, just close with this um, brief benediction. Um, Jesus says that uh, with the bread, he said, this is my body. In the New Testament, we go on to read that we are associated as, as the body of Christ. We are to offer ourselves as Jesus offered his body, the body of Christ, the, the body of believers, the church. And so um, I read this prayer earlier, and I want to share this with you now. You are the body of Christ. May you have the heart of Christ, tender for mercy. May you have the eyes of Christ to see a world in need. May you have the feet of Christ to bring good news. Go in peace, and God go with you. Amen.